Well, this weekend, 48 hours ago, a lobster diver off the coast of Massachusetts was swallowed by a whale and survived. Now, some of you are like, amen. I don't know how to interpret that. How do I know this? Because today we are starting the Old Testament book of Jonah, and everyone, including my mother, sought fit to send me this news article this weekend. So if you have a Bible, turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, you can just search the book of Jonah uh, on your phone. It's the 32nd book in the Old Testament. I'll be reading out of the NIV. Now, Jonah is one of the most well-known short stories of the Bible. Even if you're not a Christian, you may have heard about this book. But my question is this. Is it well understood? On the surface, the book of Jonah is about an ancient prophet, a violent civilization, an insane storm, and yes, a giant fish. Beneath the surface, however, it's a story about the nature of the human heart and the true character of God. It's a book that we hope and pray will help us rightly see God and as a result, rightly see ourselves and the world around us. So important. I want to begin this morning before I pray by reading Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Again, I'm reading out of the NIV. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us, that you chase after us, that you pursue us. And we pray this morning and through this whole series that we would pay attention, that we would receive what it is that you want to challenge, what it is that you want to heal what it is that you want to transform in all of us. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher. I may preach to the ears of these men and women, but we ask that you would preach to the heart. And as a result, would we be changed? We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, the 26-mile-long Boston Marathon is a well-known endurance course, and on April 21st, the year 1980, race history was made. A 26-year-old New Yorker crossed the finish line with a record-breaking time of only two hours and 31 minutes. There was only one problem. She didn't actually run the race. As she accepted the winner's wreath on the podium, people around her quickly began to notice her lack of sweat and perspiration and race point 
officials struggled to recognize her face. The truth is, this is a true story, by the way, the truth is she actually jumped in on the final half mile, completely decked out in full race apparel. But she never admitted to cheating. Though personally pressed with accusations, she insisted that she did not cheat, believing that she had legitimately run and won. She even stated that she would do another marathon as proof, but she never did. She created a race of her own making, but it wasn't the Boston Marathon. Now the story is often told to make a point about religiosity. It's like running a race that we haven't really entered. We can all be wearing the right uniform, create a course of our own making, and yet not actually be in the race at all. And we're meant to ask, could that be me? See, in many ways, this could be the story of Jonah. He is a prophet in ancient Israel. His job was to be a messenger, a representative of God. He has the uniform, if you will. But as the story ends, we find out that Jonah had a very different idea of God. Jonah had a God of his own making. It just wasn't fully representative of the God of the Bible. And yet he insisted that he's still running the race. And through the four chapters of this book, over the next six weeks, we see Jonah confronted by who God truly is. And as a result, and in the process, Jonah is confronted with who he really is. And so the book really does two things. The book reveals God, and as it does, it reveals not only the prophet, but it reveals the heart of every person. So what is Jonah about? Well, let me give you a a little hint. It's not about the fish. Can we talk about this? There's two things I want to say about the great fish, which we're told in the story swallows Jonah and spits him out so that he can get on with his work. First of all, if you're with us and you're not yet a Christian, or maybe you are, but you're really skeptical, and you come across a story like this, and it's the immediate eye roll. You're like, here we go. I come to church, and it's like, Jonah and the whale. And you're like, really? Let me just say this, and I understand If God exists, he is able to do the miraculous. And if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, which we believe he was and to which history affirms, then there should be nothing surprising at all whatsoever about any other miracle. It's not as if God's like, oh, I can do some miracles, but like a fish, that's kind of out of my wheelhouse. Like, that's not a thing. Also, This account is presented and affirmed as history, and it does not present aspects of the story as being made up. In fact, usually if people do want to make up wild details, it's usually to add some spectacle or grab the attention of the reader. But I want you to notice, the writer doesn't do this. In fact, the great fish is mentioned in only two sentences. Which leads to my second point, friends. This book is not about the fish. Can we all say that? It's not about the fish. 
Thank you. <laughs> it's not about the fish. Are we at church? What's happening here? We'll get there. And here's why that's important. To make the story about the fish is to mistake it and that moment for the climax of the story, but it's not. Now, here's why we need to say it, because a lot of the children's versions, the kids' versions, the story is basically Jonah was supposed to be a prophet. He runs away from God, gets thrown off the, uh, a ship into the sea, a, a whale swallows him, and he gets spat out, end of story. But that's actually not where the story ends. There's two more chapters. In fact, it leaves out the whole point of the story at the very end. So what is this book about? By way of introduction, let me just say three things. First of all, this book is about, well, Jonah. This is the usual way, the beginning of an account about prophets in the Bible. The word of the Lord came. That's how we know it's one of the books of the prophets. Last week, we concluded the book of Ruth, which is one of the historical books in the Bible. Today, the book of Jonah we're looking at is in the Old Testament section known as the prophets. But what makes it unique is usually the, the book of the prophets are about the word of the Lord to and through a prophet. But in this case, it's unique because it's a story about Jonah. We're meant to pay attention to what happens to him. And it probably took place around the 8th century B.C. And the book follows this particular moment when God gave him a mission. But by the time you get to verse 2, the original readers would have raised their eyebrows. Why? First, because God was calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is in the very place of modern-day Iraq, and Nineveh was a Gentile city. Nineveh was a non-Jewish city. Why is that surprising? Because typically the prophets in the Old Testament were sent to their own people, but shockingly, here is a word from God to the non-Jewish people. Eyebrows would also raise when they saw what city it was. It was Nineveh. Nineveh was an oppressive, violent city at the heart of the Assyrian Empire, which some historians describe as a terrorist state in the ancient world. When my family and I were still living in London, we had the privilege of going to the British Museum often. And if you hang a left when you enter in that glorious place, you would come into the area in which had all the artifacts of Assyria, and they had the remaking of what you might have seen when you walked into the gates of Nineveh. And on the, the giant poles holding the gates, there was all these images of how the Assyrian Empire tortured all of its enemies. You were meant to say, oh, no when you were walking up to those gates. It was a horrible, horrible, violent situation. And what makes it more surprising is that Jonah, if you read about him in the only other part of the Bible where he's mentioned in the book of 2 Kings, we learn about Jonah that he is an intense nationalist who was known for actually supporting one of Israel's terrible kings, King Jeroboam who had an aggressive military campaign and sought to extend Israel's power. Unlike the other prophets who criticized this King Jeroboam because of his unfaithfulness and injustice, we learn that Jonah actually supported it. He's an interesting character, as we shall see. This book is about Jonah, the most unlikely candidate who is asked to share a message with people he seemed to fear and to hate. But that's why the book is more than about Jonah. 
Secondly, this is a book about God. Why would God reach out to the enemies of his people? Well, that's one of the reasons why this book is here in the Bible. Through its pages and paragraphs, we find revelations and insights into the character of God and the heart of God for both the community of believers and beyond. And as we learn about this book, we may be challenged, hopefully corrected, so that we have a right view and a right understanding of who God is. We learn God's heart for his people, and we also learn about God's heart for sinners, the outsiders, and the enemies. But that raises a question. Does that mean that God approves of what they do? When God says he loves the world, some of us might think, wait a minute, God, I know you love people like me, but people like them, like, why wouldn't you love me? I'm like, cute. Isn't that a doctrine? The doctrine of irresistible cuteness? God saw you and he's like, oh, uh, He's like, oh, you can come in, but the rest of you, nah. God, why would, why would you love those people? How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? How can that even happen? How is that a thing? And as we learn that, we must ask, how does this shape the way that we relate to God? How does this shape the way that we view our own lives? How does this shape the way that we view the people and the world around us? This book, at its heart, is theological, revealing the character of God. But we must respond. And that's why, thirdly, this book is about us. Many writers have pointed out that the book of Jonah is like a mirror, we will see ourselves in it. But what will we resemble most? Will we resemble the beauty of God? Or will we resemble the brokenness of Jonah? How do we view our neighbors in Ventura County? How do we view the other people in our nation and in this world? How do we view God? As he reveals himself to us, we might be a little challenged and learn that maybe we've been cherry-picking when it comes to the attributes of God. And this morning we must ask, are we running towards him or are we running from him? And that's where we begin, friends. Right at the start of the book, Jonah reveals a tendency in every single one of us to run from God. And I want us to ask three simple questions. We all run from God, but where do we run? Why do we run? And what turns us around? First of all, where do we run? Because it's very obvious from the beginning, in many ways, Jonah is about a story of running from God. Look at verse three. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish. Notice, to flee from the Lord. This book teaches us not only that it is a tendency to run away from God, but actually there are two ways to flee from God. Where do we run when we run from God? We either run into lawlessness or we run into legalism. And I want us to 
take note of this. Friends, this is so important. First of all, when some of us run from God, we run into lawlessness. Up until this point in time, Jonah appears to be content with how things were going in his life and what he was doing in Israel. It's not as if he had like an Airbnb all booked for Tarshish and he was just waiting for the Middle East travel restrictions to lift before he could finally take that holiday. No, it was when God called him to go to Nineveh that he flees in the opposite direction. Jonah, at the beginning of this book, in his rejecting of God, he goes in the farthest opposite direction possible. If you look on a map, Tarshish is on the opposite side of the known world from Nineveh. One way that we run from God is through direct disobedience. God, you're calling to me to be faithful? Well, I'm gonna be unfaithful. God, you're calling me to be just? No way, I'm gonna be unjust. Maybe that describes some of us. When we run, we run into lawlessness. But there's a second way that we run from God, and that is through legalism, or to use another word, religiosity. And this is actually what we see in Jonah in the second half of the book. As a result of the episode with, yes, the fish, Jonah does eventually go to Nineveh. But unlike many of the children's versions, sorry, it's going to be like church therapy right now for those of you who are like, Jonah and the whale, I thought it was all about the whale. I don't like this church. Settle down. The story doesn't end in chapter two. The book reveals, take note, that Jonah, even when he eventually did what God asked him to do, he is still furious with God and he hates his neighbor. He despises them. And the book ends. It's like a great cliffhanger. If you want some drama, read Jonah. So you can try to flee from God by running into lawlessness. But you can also try to flee from God by running into religiosity. That is trusting in your own righteousness and your own behavior to make you right. It's like wearing the runner's outfit without really being in the race. And that is why, friends, many students of the book of Jonah have noticed the similarities to the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in the New Testament. In the first half of Jonah, he is essentially the, the prodigal son of Christ's famous parable found in Luke chapter 15 the younger son who ran away from his father into a far country to do as he pleases. Also, you might include the Ninevites here, like that first son, though not a part of Israel, they lived in absolutely reckless behavior. But in the second half of the book, however, Jonah is like the older brother of the parable that Jesus tells, who obeys his father, but becomes angry with him because of his graciousness towards repentant sinners. And that parable that Jesus tells ends with a question from the father to a pharisaical son when he says, shouldn't I rejoice your son who is dead and is now alive? Shouldn't we rejoice? And in a similar way, the book of Jonah ends with God asking Jonah, the pharisaical prophet, with another question, should I not love Nineveh? Should I not have compassion on them? 
Here's why it's so important for us to note this. Many people, even Christians, think that sin is only about the bad things that we do. And of course, it is. But it's more than that. We can also try to hide from God through our good deeds, done through sinful attitudes and selfish motives. It's called legalism. It's religiosity. The Pharisees in the New Testament in the time of Jesus, were a group of religious leaders and were told that they did all the right things. And from an outward perspective, they were more obedient than the rest of the people in Israel at the time. And yet, they were completely blind. They were blinded by their religiosity. They were blinded by their self-righteousness and through it and because of it, they rejected and crucified Jesus and Jesus himself reserved some of his harshest words for these religious people. They had the uniform, but they had deceived themselves about winning a race they were not really in. Friends, I want us to see that both reflect the problem of sin. See, some of us, we might say, oh, I'm not sleeping around. I'm not getting wasted on the weekends. I'm a good person, and I tithe to this church every single week via check. I don't do things that the rest of the people do in Ventura County on Main Street after 9 p.m. when all manner of licentiousness takes place. No, no, no. What am I doing? Fasting. Listen, it is very easy for us because it looks good on the outside. It may be the right thing on the outside, indeed. But here's the problem. We can use our moral record to put God in our debt. We can use our moral record, our rightness, to try to put other people in our debt and control them and get them to do what we want them to do. And in that, you become like a taxpayer. God, I was pure. Where's my stuff? God, I tithed for all those years to that church. Every time they're like, give generously, I gave. How come you're not blessing me? How come I didn't get a pay rise, God? Where are you now? We might not say it on the outside, but oftentimes we can use our moral record to put God in our debt. God, look what I've done. We need to recognize that that too is a part of the problem of sin. And until we see this, friends, and until we recognize that even in our own lives, we won't be healed and we won't see God rightly and we will not see others rightly. So at the beginning, we're meant to ask, when I'm tempted to run from God, am I tempted to go into lawlessness or is it legalism? Is it religiosity or is it irreligion? When we run, where do we run? But secondly, to get to the heart of this, we've got to ask a second question. Why do we run? The story tells us here at the beginning that Jonah runs away. But why did he run away? It doesn't tell us at the very beginning. Now, oftentimes, sorry, I'm dealing with the children's version again, but this is important. You guys okay with this? You on board with me? Still with me? Great. Oftentimes, the way that this story is related to children is that Jonah was scared. And of course, there were a lot of reasons to be. After all, Nineveh was the center of Assyrian military might and oppression. It would be insane to go and preach there. 
it would be the equivalent of sending a Jewish rabbi in 1941 onto the streets of Berlin and call Nazi Germany to repent. Not exactly an appealing mission. And fear could be one reason he ran from God. And fear could be one reason that we might run from God. But fear is not the primary reason we're told that Jonah ran from God. How do we know that? The book actually tells us. Jonah himself tells us later on in the book, in chapter four, God sees the repentance of the wicked people of Nineveh and he does not destroy them. And Jonah flips out and lays his cards on the table. Let me read it to you. Jonah chapter four, verses one through three. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home? You're meant to go, oh, that's what he was thinking back in chapter one. Didn't I say, God, before I left home that you would do this? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're merciful. I knew that you're compassionate, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Uh-oh, Jonah's got issues. <laughs> Why do I make that point? Because what I want us to see is this. Whether or not you're inclined to go towards lawlessness or legalism, at the heart of all of our running from God is the mistrust of God. We don't trust him. Jonah mistrusted God. He mistrusted God's mission, and he mistrusted the reason for God's mission. He doubted the goodness of God. He doubted the, the rightness of God. And what happened when God's desire clashed with his desire? Who made the tie-breaking decision? Jonah. And when we mistrust God, we view ourselves as the authority. Because sadly, the same is often true for us, even if it looks differently on the outside, even in the church. We tend to cherry pick aspects of the Christian life that most suit our natural desires and maybe dismiss or ignore the other parts altogether. For example, maybe you like the call to be distinct and separate from the world, but you don't like the call to love the world and to serve the world. Or by contrast, maybe you love your neighbor, you like the neighbor part, but you don't like the holiness part. You don't like the purity part. For example, some Christians will gladly hold to a Christian sex ethic of purity in singleness and fidelity in marriage, but you might not like serving the poor, or loving, reaching out, and serving your neighbor, even your natural enemies. Or on the flip side, maybe you love the justice part. Maybe you love the caring for the poor part. Maybe you love the serving your neighbor, but you laugh at the call to sexual purity. See, no matter who you are, where you're from, how you were raised, there's always going to be an aspect of God that will challenge what is natural to us. Why? Because God is perfect and we are not. We are flawed. We are sinful, as Scripture says. When we run from God, it's because we're trusting in our authority and we mistrust his authority. We've got to call it what it is. Augustine, who was one of the great theologians of the early church, he put it so well. He said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel 
and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, it is yourself. And you end up creating a God in your own image. But friends, listen. A God of your own making is a God that cannot correct you. A God of your own making is a God that cannot challenge you. A God of your own making is a God that cannot change you. So when the call of God challenges you in whatever area it is of your life, who wins? It may not be a wholesale today, I'm fleeing everything in the Christian life, but maybe, friends, it's in certain areas. And when there is a disagreement between you and the Bible, who wins? The answer to that shows where our trust really lies. Because at the heart of our running from God is mistrust. We wrestle with him or reject his commands because we do not think he has our best interests in mind. When he asks you to abstain from sexual immorality, you think he's just trying to make you miserable. When he asks you to be radically generous with your time and your money, you may think he doesn't care about your practical needs. And when he asks you to love your enemy, you might assume that God doesn't care about the things that the wicked do. So where are we mistrusting God? This is a question I've had to be asking of myself. And I'm calling you to ask, in what area are you mistrusting God? You may not yet be a Christian, and you say it's the whole deal. But just know that in that moment, you're saying you're the authority and that you know better. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but maybe it's in a particular area. I'm just not, I don't trust God in my marriage. I don't trust God in my finances. I don't trust God with my career. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go my own path. I'm gonna print out the PDF and, and mail it to him. Like, God, this is my plan for my life. Would you bless it? Where are we mistrusting God? Or to put it, a finer point on it, where are we believing that he doesn't have our best interests at heart? Right, isn't that the question? God, why are you allowing this trial in my life? Like, you don't love me. Surely you don't love me because if you loved me, you wouldn't allow these things to happen. And we have a very detailed list. Friends, this morning, we need to be honest and confess any mistrust we have in our hearts. But it doesn't end there. How do we change? The final question is, what turns us around? See, Jonah cannot, he simply cannot see how God can be both just and merciful. He cannot reconcile it in his heart. He won't believe that God would be gracious to sinners. Perhaps he thought that God's mercy on them meant God's approval of what they did, which is not the case. We need to know this, God's offer of forgiveness to you and to the world is not his approval of everything that we do. He does not offer us mercy because of our deeds, but in spite of our deeds, whether they are good or bad. And what Jonah needed to see and what God was determined to show him was that the same mercy extended to the wicked Ninevites was the same mercy he needed for himself. He must confess that just like the Ninevites, sin blinded him 
about the truth, just as sin blinded the Ninevites to the truth of God. It just looked different on the outside. Both Jonah and Nineveh had run from God. Both were in need of mercy. Nineveh had run from God through lawlessness. Jonah had run from God through his legalism, but both needed to turn to God. And just like the younger brother and the older brother in Jesus' parable, we remember this morning, there are those two ways. You can run from him by directly disobeying him, but you can also run from him by trying to be religious and trusting in your own righteousness and your moral behavior to control God and to save yourself. But the point is this, friends, all of us need to be saved. And the good news is that all of us can be saved because God pursues both. And the one who saves us is the one who resolves not only the tension in this book, but the tension in our own hearts. How can God love sinners and hate sin? How can God be both just and merciful? And the answer is found in Jesus Christ, the righteous savior and sacrifice who came into this world and hated sin and wanted to rescue us from sin. But instead of making you pay or me pay, he said, I will pay. And on the cross, he is shown to be both just. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't come up with a new progressive definition of sin. He says, sin is awful. It is deadly. You all need to pay, but I'm gonna pay the price on your behalf because I love you and I chase you and I pursue you. Friends, what turns us around from running away from God is seeing how Jesus, Jesus Christ ran towards you. Jesus pursued you all the way to the point of death on a cross. And this is good news for us all. How can God be both merciful and just through his son, Jesus Christ? Because it was at the cross when he came, he showed us how bad our sin was that he had to die, but showed the greatness of his love that he was glad to die for you and for me. He ran after you. He runs after you today. That is not his approval on what you are doing, but it's an evidence of his love. And so we'll see again and again that Jesus is actually the true and better Jonah who didn't only understand justice and mercy, but brought full justice and mercy through the cross in a way that can save us all. And so here at the beginning, Jonah shows us this. There's no one so bad that they cannot be saved. And there's no one so good who doesn't need to be saved. I don't know which part of the spectrum you're on today. Maybe you're like, I'm so far gone. There's no way God can save me. Friend, that is a lie. You can be saved today, right now, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no one, if you're alive and you have a pulse right now and you're hearing the gospel, you can be saved in this moment and know that you are forgiven and accepted by God forever. For those of you who are self-righteous, you're like, I'm good. Dear friend, I say this with love and conviction, you need Jesus. We all need Jesus. And what turns us around from running away from God is seeing God running after us, even when we were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. So it's when we see sin for what it is, and then we look at our Savior for who he is, that we are turned around, changed from the inside out, all because of his grace toward us. So if you're running from God 
in a particular area, running from God with your whole life, he is pursuing you this morning. He's getting your attention. He loves you. He's calling you to turn towards him. It might even be in a particular area where you're like, God, I don't trust you, and I'm just like holding it back. He's saying, will you trust me? Repentance today looks like this. All of us saying, God, I trust you. That area that I'm trying to take away from you, I'm giving you the reins. You are worthy. You're the authority. I look at the cross, and I know that you have my best interests at heart. Because that struggle for all of us to trust is resolved when we see what he's done for us in Jesus. So no more making gods in our own image who can't change us. No more creating our own race and running according to our own rules, but accepting God for who he is and receiving the grace that he's extended to us in Jesus Christ. And his grace is what causes us to run towards him and not away from him, to love his presence and not want to flee from his presence. And today he calls you near. Will we respond? Let's pray now that we do. Father, I first pray for those who do not yet know you and they've never trusted you. I pray right now that they would put their faith and their trust in Jesus. I pray that they would say, whether they're watching from home, on their laptop or phone, or they're here in the parking lot, I pray that they would not just think, oh, that must be a word for someone else. No, that they would see this is, this is salvation for me. That right now that they would say, Jesus, I believe you came and died on a cross for all my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day to give me new life. I turn from my sin and I trust in you. Father, I pray that that would happen right now in those hearts. And for us as a church, Father, if there's any way in which we're mistrusting you, I pray that you give us fresh perspective as we look to the cross. I pray that your presence in that area would not be bad news, but good news. That we would not flee from your presence, but rejoice in your presence. That we would rejoice that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sin. That we would rejoice that you love us so much that you want to heal us. That we would declare to you, gladly, boldly, and loudly that you are trustworthy. And I don't want to run from you. So Holy Spirit, would you make that a reality in our hearts as we respond even now? In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, this morning we have that moment to respond. We say this every week, but this is not a time that we just get distracted and move on to the more important things. This is the most important thing. There's men and women to my left and to my right by the prayer team stands. They're here to pray with you and for you. You can get up. I encourage you to be bold today. It doesn't matter if other people see you. Just go and say, I need prayer. I need to learn to trust God's will for my life. To not fear, but rejoice in the presence of God. I want to be healed of my religiosity. I want to be healed of anything that's blinding me. Go and pray. There's communion elements in the baskets. You can grab them and celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for you today. And together we can all sing. We can lift our voices and rejoice in the God who pursues us. Rejoice in the God whose presence and grace and mercy heals us and changes us from the inside out. So let's not miss what he wants to do in this moment.
and let's respond now, friends.